On Monday, September 18th, 2021, Canadians went to the polls for the 44th time to cast their vote in our federal election. The election of a government by the public is the practice of democracy and the basis of Canada's system of government. But in one crucial area, Canada's democratic governments are not doing very well. Climate change. Across many years and multiple governments, Canada continues to be a laggard in climate action, despite being labeled a full democracy by the Democracy Index. So, in the wake of a critical election, in a year of climate disasters, and as we run out of time to meet our greenhouse gas reduction targets, this week we take a look at how Canada's electoral system enables or limits climate action efforts, and ask ourselves a big question. Is the democratic system of Canada failing to address the climate crisis? From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. You're listening, you're listening. You're listening. to Terra Informa. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Sonic Patel, and I'll be your host for the next half hour of environmental news and storytelling. Before I begin, I would like to acknowledge that this episode was produced in a Miskwichi, Wisconsin, Beaver Hills House, or so-called Edmonton. This is Treaty 6 territory, the traditional lands of many Indigenous and Métis people, including the Cree, Blackfoot, and Dene. We are broadcasting from unrecognized Papas Chase Cree territory. The Papas Chase Cree were displaced following consistent efforts from local officials like Frank Oliver to discredit the legitimacy of their treaty right to this territory and to reserve number 136, now South Edmonton, where this episode was written. Not confined to history, this region is also the present homelands of many First Peoples who build their lives here, pursue livelihoods, and gather together. This week, we're talking about governance systems and representation, and we ask that, wherever you're listening from, you think about whose version of history informs your understanding of the land you are on. Whose voices are present and respected in the governance of your place? And who really benefits from these governance systems? we ask you to consider how the electoral system does and could better enfranchise Indigenous peoples across this country, who are often on the forefronts of our climate action and environmental movements. Dissecting the decades-old electoral system of the country is no small task. And thankfully, I have some help to look at how the electoral system is impacting climate action efforts from Gisela Ruckert of Fair Vote Canada. So I'm Gisela Ruckert. I am speaking to you from the unceded lands of the Chequemic in Chequemic Ulu, which is the land that covers about 180 square kilometers in the central interior of BC. So that's right at the confluence of the North and South Thompson Rivers, where the city of Kamloops is now located, and that's my home. So I came to Fair Vote Canada from the environmental movement, surprise, surprise. I helped found a small grassroots climate action group in Kamloops about 2006-2007 and 
you know, we were feeling quite excited about progress on climate action until the Harper years when things took a step backwards. And at that time, I realized that even when we achieve progress on long-term issues like climate change, first past the post makes policy very unstable. So I guess, you know, to just sum it up, regardless of what you care about, whether that's climate action or inequality or women in politics, whatever, our political system is holding back progress in all of those areas. And in my personal opinion, climate change is the single biggest threat facing humanity right now. And we need to take a multi-pronged, all of the above approach to addressing it. And one key piece of that puzzle is uh, instituting a more representative electoral system, which will guarantee more durable legislation and lasting progress. Fair Vote Canada is a national, nonpartisan advocacy organization with expertise in electoral reform that campaigns for proportional representation. One of the issues they discuss is Canada's climate performance, which is not so hot. Unlike Canada's actual climate, which on average is rising rapidly. Before we can talk about how our electoral system impacts climate action, we need to start with getting a lay of the land. Here's how Canada's election system works. Canada's government is a constitutional monarchy, where decisions are made by the House of Commons, the Senate, and the Queen of the United Kingdom. The House of Commons is where legislation is first introduced and debated. Once these bills are approved, they go to the Senate, who also debate the bill. And once it's approved by the Senators, it gets royal assent. Think of that as a checkmark with a crown, before it becomes law. Of these three, the only elected group is the House of Commons. Each member of Parliament, or MP, in the House of Commons represents a geographical area in Canada, called an electoral district, or a riding, or sometimes a constituency. There are 338 electoral districts in Canada, and therefore 338 seats in the House. Districts are made using a representation formula and consider communities of interest or identity, historical patterns, and geographical size. So, how does a riding elect a representative? Canada uses something called a single-member plurality, which is commonly called first-past-the-post. In every electoral district, the candidate that receives the most votes is elected. Bear in mind, this hypothetical winner only needs a plurality, the most votes, not a majority, more than half the votes. Because of the way the election system works, some call it a winner-take-all system. Because the winner of the plurality takes all the representative power for the entire writing, even if they don't receive the majority of votes. This system has a huge impact on the way Canadian governments are constructed. Just look at the 2021 election results. The Liberal Party won the election and formed government, with 47% of seats in the House of Commons. But the Liberal government only received 32.6% of the votes cast. Believe it or not, the Conservative Party actually received more votes than the Liberals, with 34% of total votes 
and 35% of seats. The numbers get more drastic for other parties. The NDP got 18% of votes, but only 7.4% of seats. The Green Party received 2.3% of the vote, but only 0.6% of the seats, about one-fifth of what they quote-unquote deserved, as per the popular vote. The winner-take-all system also means that people may be inclined to vote strategically, where they vote for parties they don't believe in to prevent others from winning. So now that we know how elections work in Canada, how do they affect the federal government's climate action efforts? And back to our big question, is the democratic system of Canada failing to address the climate crisis? That's the question I put to Gisela Ruckert of Fair Vote Canada. Gisela and I talked about some of the issues with the electoral system in Canada, including policy instability created by short-term election cycles and the adversarial nature of first-past-the-post systems. Here's Gisela. Canada makes any legislation very vulnerable to reversal every time there's a slight shift in voters' preferences. So long-term consistency on big, complex issues like climate change is really difficult to achieve. But there are some other really big impacts that we should also talk about. First past the post is, by its nature, very adversarial and polarizing. So it encourages parties to appeal to their base and try and crush each other rather than work together to find solutions that are agreeable to a broader segment of voters. It makes our country look far more divided than it actually is. We see this narrative particularly in the prairie provinces because they feel quite rightly that they are left out in the cold to a large degree under recent governments. But that's because the system exaggerates regional differences and it silences all the voices except the single loudest, single largest group of voters in each region. So that kind of disengagement um, breeds cynicism and, and it encourages people to give up on voting, which is exactly what we don't want. Um, you know, just think about the impact that it has on young people when they don't want to vote because they know their votes won't matter. And you can't really say that they're wrong about that. Your point about young voters, I think, really sort of speaks to me. It's It's been seven years since I turned 18, so it's been my second federal election. Um, and both times I have voted for what I would call the second worst party um, out of fear that what I think is the, the least likely party, and I'm sure... You and most listeners could speculate what those two are in my head. Um, so I'm wondering, you know, do you think this practice of strategic voting specifically diminishes climate action intention in government? Absolutely. So um, you you listed that, you know, you've already said that smaller parties are often the victims of strategic voting. So first past the post means that only the loudest voices in each riding are heard. And the parties that tend to put climate up front are the smaller parties. So our voting system quite clearly disadvantages those smaller parties because, as you said, for individual voters, it's a risk to vote for anything other than the parties who are, you know, your top contenders in a riding. So voters tend to 
kind of act rationally and vote strategically against a party that they really don't like, rather than for a party that they actually support. And the Green Party is, you know, acknowledged to be probably the biggest uh, loser in this dynamic. They actually have far more supporters across the country than actual voters. And because then they don't turn out those voters, it makes it easier for that government, for any government to ignore those parties because because they don't have a lot of pull in Parliament. So it's kind of a a self-reinforcing dynamic. One of the questions I had while making this episode was less about the problems of the the first-past-the-post system and more about democratic systems in general. Are democratic governments struggling with climate science denial? Climate change acceptance has definitely risen in recent years, but there are still parts of the population and government that don't accept climate change is real or don't see a need to do anything about it. Getting back to democracy and the climate crisis, my question for Gisela was, do you think that sort of these misunderstandings about climate science and you know possible solutions amongst the electorate threatens you know the effectiveness of any democratic system to respond to climate change? Absolutely. I mean, really, if we were all doing it the right way, we would be making evidence-based policy every day. And our system doesn't particularly encourage that. It encourages this overblown rhetoric. It creates the perception of a false equivalency on things like climate change. So this is the thing when you have a minority of voters and they control the outcomes in parliament basically 100% because when you have a majority of seats, you can implement whatever legislation that you want and you really don't have to listen to anyone else. So that encourages catering to your base and not necessarily to a broader segment of voters, which would ensure that that kind of policy would continue longer than four terms. That's why we have this dynamic in Canada of throw the bums out, and we have these really strong policy lurches, you know, with just tiny shifts in in voter support. You know, these are just a few percentage points that, that are shifting from a majority conservative government to a majority liberal government in that case between 2012 and 2015. So, it's a very small group of voters that end up um, being kingmakers. And the best way to appeal to those voters is not necessarily through a science-based approach. It's through an emotional approach that often is not particularly um, reflective of the actual evidence on any given policy. Climate action has actually, you know, risen to the top of voters' priority. The um, the difficulty that we are having in Canada, and it's not just the part of our government, although I, I do believe that, that the government could be more proactive about this, but the difficulty that we're having is, is making that next step from saying, yes, this is important to, yes, we really need to invest in policies that are going to reduce the risks of, you know, the most serious impacts of climate change. But I think that our system doesn't allow politicians to take the risk and say, you know, go all out and say, this is what we need to do. Even though Canadians, I think, are looking for that leadership, they're always trying to play it safe and not scare any voters. They're, they're petrified of losing a few voters because 
only a few voters mean that the other party will actually end up in control. So they have to be very careful because in Canada, you know, with this dynamic between the Liberals and the Conservatives being the two largest parties, they have extremely uh, different approaches to climate action. And I would argue that, you know, one of them is a lot stronger than the other, not strong enough. Um, but it, they can't go much further under our current system because they risk putting that other party back in power. Leaders, elected leaders can't get too far ahead of the electorate without, um, without paying the price at the polls the next time. And in Canada, that has had exactly this effect of just keeping back climate action because we're afraid of scaring anyone. When really what we, what we ought to do is reward parties with seats in um, alignment with their share of the vote, in which case we would have a strong majority of seats held by parties that actually believe in stronger climate action. Gisela mentioned a pretty big issue in that clip. It's a very small group of voters that end up being kingmakers. That seems pretty contrary to the whole idea of democracy, which literally translates to rule of the people. If some people have more power or greater influence than others, then that's a failure in the system meant to work by all and for all. Inequality in our representativeness might even contribute to systemic inequalities across our country. We know that the first-past-the-post system tends to elect a lot of older white males, uh, you know, a far higher percentage than is than would, they would be a, a representative sample. Um, and Indigenous people are affected, communities of colour and, and minorities in general are affected by that dynamic. When you're only allowed to put forward one candidate per party, there's, an, there's always a bias for, you know, a relatively privileged white male candidate and parties are, you know, to their credit, some more than others. The New Democrats are probably doing the most in terms of really pushing for um, diversity on their candidate list. But it's up to the parties at this point to do that. And uh, uh, the system doesn't encourage diversity particularly. Whereas if we had um, a proportional system, they often come with the ability to run multiple candidates in any given riding because you'll have a choice of, of candidates from amongst the same party often. And when you have three candidates that you can put on the list, the chances are much higher that you're going to actually look at creating some diversity within that list rather than when you can only put forward a single choice. So I, I think that the uh, Indigenous example of New Zealand is quite inspiring when they shifted to a proportional system in 1996. Um, they had a history quite similar to ours, and you know, they obviously had the same British colonial history as we do. And uh, they, at that time, carried on the tradition of reserving some seats for Maori representatives. So that's something else that we could look at in the design of a Maine and Canada system, because I think it would be very difficult to argue that Indigenous people shouldn't have a greater say in, in the governing of our country. Speaking of who has power in our electoral system, Gisela and I also talked about the role of corporate interference on climate action. I think that corporate interference or um, industry interests are creating an issue with a democratic system that's you know supposed to be for the people. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and it's not just your feeling. There is actually evidence to support that that hypothesis. Solomon Oriana is a researcher who has done a lot of investigation into that area and, and specifically comparing consensual governing systems like proportional representation versus winner-take-all systems. And his findings are very clear that winner-take-all systems actually have uh, the effect of increasing what he called, I think it was called elite capture or something like that, where you're pandering to small influential corporations because you you want their support the next time around. And there's like a couple of different ways that that needs to be addressed. One of them is electoral reform, but the other one is also voting finance reform because we want to make sure that uh, corporate interests are not the drivers behind public policy. You're listening to Terra Informa on CJSR 88.5 FM. Before the break, we were talking about some of the ways the democratic system of Canada is struggling to handle the climate crisis. Having covered some of the struggles of the electoral system, let's talk about how it could be made to better support climate action. Joining me is Gisela Ruckert from Faribault, Canada. Faribault Canada advocates for something called proportional representation, or PR. Here's Gisela explaining how a PR system works. It's actually the most common family of democratic systems in the world. It's used in over 90 countries, and Canada's not one of them yet, but that's why we have Faribault Canada. Um, and all of the proportional systems that have been recommended for Canada, we keep the good stuff from our current system, like local MPs. Uh, people have said they really want to have a local person that they can turn to, so you know they would all allow for that. All of them would still elect MPs by name, not party. Um, some countries do use party lists where you just vote for the party, but it's clear that that wouldn't fly in Canada, so that hasn't been seriously proposed. But the difference is that the seats in Parliament would more accurately reflect the way that we vote. So, for example, if 30% of people vote for one party, that party would win about 30% of the seats. So that brings with it some changes in practical terms. Most significantly, I think, a shift in the political culture. Because voters in most countries, including Canada, very rarely give a single party more than 50% of the vote. So under a proportional system, they wouldn't win more than 50% of the seats very often, although actually it does happen now then, just happened in, in New Zealand in the last election. But generally, parties have to work together to pass legislation. And they do. They learn. Typically, two or three parties end up cooperating. And as I said, that ends up creating better legislation that is supported by a majority of voters across the country, not just one party's base. And that means that it tends to last longer. Kisela and Fairvote Canada think there is a lot of benefit in a PR system. But we also talked about a few other options for electoral reform. One of them was direct democracy or the direct participation of citizens in decision-making. Think about something like a public referendum, where the electorate votes on an issue. In fact, Switzerland operates a direct democracy, 
where referendums allow for policy and changes to the Constitution. Here's Gisela's thoughts on the direct democracy route for climate action. I believe that there, this is my personal opinion, that there is a very strong role for direct democracy in terms of guiding more effective um, policy, especially with regards to climate policy. I don't know if you're aware of um, the citizens' assemblies in France and the UK on, on climate change and climate action. So those are two examples that, that we look to in terms of processes that, that work. Um, the research on referendums makes it clear that it's actually not a very good tool for, that they are not a very good tool for decision-making. So I, I guess there's a right way and a wrong way to do direct democracy. Referendums tend to be very easily manipulated. They're very vulnerable to disinformation and citizens, when you look at exit polls, uh, tend to make uh, decisions based on misinformation just as much as actual factual information. So our recommendation is for better citizens processes like citizens assemblies, which is uh, when you have a group of average but representative citizens that are selected by sortition, so much like a jury, but with the right percentage of women, people of color, indigenous representatives, et cetera, basically a mini public, a mini version of the society. And you give these folks the information that they need to really study the issue in depth and have constructive dialogue. And then they produce evidence-based recommendations on behalf of all of us. And this kind of a process is being used more and more around the world. It's, it's what we at Fairvote Canada recommend as a trustworthy process on on the on the path to electoral reform. It's what we're currently fighting for is a national citizens assembly on electoral reform. Okay, so maybe direct democracy is not the right answer for climate change when climate science denial is still an issue in Canada. But what about the other direction? What if, given all the issues with slow moving governments, policy instability, and lack of cooperation, we should consider a non-democratic government. The idea may sound radical, but there are some voices that believe the scope of the climate crisis is so great that democracy needs to be put on hold until we can make the necessary changes. Critics of democracy might even argue that only an authoritarian government can take the long-term view needed to achieve necessary emissions reduction. Once achieved, I assume the transition back to democracy will be peaceful and without any issues. The Chinese government is sometimes held up as one example of a government that produces non-democratic climate action at a rapid pace. I asked Gisela about the potential for an environmental-focused non-democratic government, often referred to as eco-authoritarianism. People often talk about China as having the ability to leapfrog other countries on climate action because they can say, you know, snap their fingers and this is what we're going to be doing from now on. Um, and even though I think that might be tempting in a number of ways, I just don't see that being something that Canadians are clamoring for. I, I, I think that uh, we would probably resist that kind of a change. I think that a more structured um format for direct democracy would be a lot more acceptable to people. Um, Belgium, for example, has instituted a permanent parallel citizens assembly to advise government and 
and help create policy. Um, so I think that Canadians would tend to go more in that direction. So maybe authoritarianism isn't the answer either, even though there are some problems with democratic systems. As Winston Churchill once said, democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the others that have been tried. Maybe we just need to fix our democracy. Climate change is going to affect all of us, and it seems like we need a government that represents all of us to deal with it. Could it be time to add democratic reform to the list of immediate and necessary climate actions? Without strong and consistent efforts from all levels of government, across our global constituency, we are failing to address the climate crisis. That's all the time we have for this week. Thank you very much to Gisela Ruckert for joining us for this episode. For more information about Fairvote Canada and their advocacy work, check out their website, fairvote.ca. I've been your host, Sonic Patel. Thanks for listening. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, and all of our content is created by a team of volunteers. This week's episode was written by myself, Sonic Patel, and Elizabeth Dowdell. Our producer is Hannah Cunningham. You can reach us for comments or questions via email, tara at cgsr.com, or message us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, at Terra Informa. For previous episodes, check out our website, terrainforma.ca. Catch you next week, right here on Terra Informa.